1: a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.
0: From KQED.
2: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This song, The Message, by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, is considered one of the early hip-hop songs to get widespread attention for the genre, which started 50 years ago in the Bronx. Today, hip-hop accounts for nearly 30% of the music industry's output, the most popular genre by far, and this arc is lovingly traced by writer Jonathan Abrams through the words of the artists and producers themselves in his new book called The Come Up, an oral history of the rise of hip hop. That's next on Forum.
3: On the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise, got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, rogers in the back, junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I try
2: Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Writer and New York Times reporter Jonathan Abrams has been in love with hip hop since he was 11 years old when he managed to convince a sympathetic Circuit City employee to sell him a Tupac tape covered in parental advisory stickers. His mom made him return it, but that didn't stop Abrams. He got another cassette and made sure to hide it better.
3: That's not our problem. That's up to Brenda's family.
4: Well, let me show you how it affects our whole community. Now, Brenda really never knew her moms, and a dad was a junkie putting breath into his arms. It's sad cause I bet Brenda doesn't even know. especially in the ghetto doesn't mean you can't grow.
2: You're Brenda's got a baby, and of course, Abrams devotion to Tupac. And to Hip Hop has translated into his latest project a new book called The Come Up, an oral history of the rise of hip hop. And we want to hear from you. Who was your favorite hip hop artist or one of your favorite songs when you were growing up? You can tell us by posting it on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. And just to give you a little taste of just how much Tupac uh, meant to Jonathan Abrams, let me read a little bit from His authors note in his oral history, he writes, Growing up in the suburbs of Los Angeles during the late 1980s, I was too young to appreciate the rebellious explosion of N.W.A., a group that opened millions to the possibilities of the genre. The group's lyrics did not lend themselves to frequent radio play, and my parents didn't openly invite that hoppity hip into our home. I was plugged in enough to applaud Dr. Dre when the chronic landed, but could not yet truly appreciate the full evolution of his sonic mastery doggy style. Snoop Doggy Dog's debut album painted the scenes of an elaborate party that my adolescent mind could only partly imagine. Instead, for me, the artist who truly stoked those early embers was Tupac Amaro Shakur, as he did for so many people my age. Pac ignited in me a full devotion to hip-hop music. This was back in the days when the music found you. Long before Spotify and iTunes, I would toggle the radio dial between 92.3, the Beat, and Power 106 and record Shakur songs into a cassette tape so I could play them back on demand. I got my hands on Me Against the World, Shakur's third album, when a teenaged employee at Circuit City took pity on my pleading 11-year-old self. My mom unearthed the cassette, took one look at the parental advisory sticker, and marched me back to return it. I discreetly purchased another one, vowing to find a better hiding place. Such was the power and pull of POC on my young mind. While we're trying to connect with Jonathan Abrams, we are getting comments and songs from our listeners. This listener writes, Queen Latifah, ladies first. I think we actually have that. Let's hear a little bit of it. Queen Latifah, here she is.
1: The rhyme, it is wicked. Those that don't know how to be pros get evicted. A woman could bear you, break you, take you. Now it's time to
5: rhyme. Can you relate to a sister's open up to make you holler and scream? yo, let me take it from here, Queen. Excuse me, but I think I'm about to to get into precisely what I am about to do. I'm conversating to the folks who have no whatsoever clue. So listen very carefully as I break it down for you. Merrily, 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 high to happy overjoyed. Please will all the beats and rhymes. My sisters have employed.
2: And we've got another one here, Notorious B.I.G.'s Big Papa.
3: With style and grace, allow me to lace These lyrical
6: dishes in your Who uh, rock grooves and make moves with all the mommies The, the back, back, back of the club, club. Yeah. sipping my weight is where you find me what? The back of the club, Mac my, yeah. my crew's behind me uh. Mad question asking, i passing, music blasting But I just can't quit because one of these honeys, Biggie got to creep with, sleep with, keep the epic secret Why not, uh. why blow up my spot, cause we both got hot Now check it, I got more Mac than
1: Craig and in the bed Believe me sweetie, I got enough to feed the need No need to be greedy, I got mad friends with Benzes See notes by the layers, truly a players
3: Jump in the rover and come over, tell your friends jump in the GF3 I got the gun out by the trees. I love it when you call me Big Pop do throw your hands in the air, if you're a true player I love it when you call me Big Pop do to the honeys, get your
6: money, playin' to get like dummies I love it when your please don't up the Cause I some And I believe
2: we've got Jonathan Abrams on the line. Hi, Jonathan.
6: Mina, how you doing today?
2: I'm really doing well. Glad that uh, we were able to figure out the technical difficulties. I was just talking about how much you appreciated Tupac, and we also just heard a little bit of Biggie, and I guess that just leads me to ask you, for everything that you loved about Tupac, do you remember what your reaction was when you found out that he'd been killed? That
6: was one of those man on the moon moments for people of my generation. I'm in my late 30s and so I was about 11, 12 when I heard that he passed and my friend he came up to our house and he told me that Tupac had been shot and he had been shot like I think the previous year in New York and he had survived it, and he was rapping about it a few months later. So you just knew that he was going to be okay. And when he actually died, you know, you really wonder whether this young genre is going to survive. It's like he's one of those people who you think it just can't happen. He's too young. He's too full of full of life to, to pass. And I've only ever gotten that feeling once again, and that was when Kobe Bryant passed away.
2: Just hmm. this feeling of somebody who you just never thought, in some ways, it made you realize just how vulnerable and not invincible they really were, huh?
6: Yeah, it's it's like it just defies the, the laws of physics when, when you think of somebody of those type of caliber of people who have had that type of impact uh, in your life from afar and you see them pass away at that such young of an age. And when, when Tupac died and then Biggie died uh, the next year, you just really wonder if this young genre is going to, going to survive this uh, constant turmoil.
2: Yeah. Do you remember what song it was that did it for you uh, by Tupac? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like Brenda's got a baby. but I don't know if that's it.
6: it Brenda's got a baby is definitely one. There, there's been a lot. It, it, because what I got from pocket that young of an age, he just showed me the full, uh, range of a of black humanity where he could mm-hmm. be endearing in a song like dear mama or he could be scorched earth in a, in a song like hit Him up or he could be for me educational for brenna's got a baby or changes and i mean me and my wife we we walked out to california love oh. so there's, there's a bunch of songs that mean uh, different moments uh to me in pox and in, in pox uh, uh his his song list it's it's there's one for like every moment i feel like in every emotion
2: So you said that you were really questioning whether hip hop could survive this. Did looking at its history partly help you feel better that it could or would? Just because when I was reading your book, just looking at sort of the arc of this genre and its resilience over time was pretty inspiring.
6: Yeah, and that's what it really is. It's a story of perseverance these kids started this genre in the Bronx in the early to mid-1970s, and they were really dismayed, looked over. The Bronx was decaying back then. The Bronx was burning. They didn't really have a lot of stuff to do as far as self-esteem, and they created this beautiful musical genre that has since blossomed. And, you know, back then they were doing it, obviously, for no type of commercial type of benefit. They didn't know that it would become this – genre that's permeated mainstream society everywhere but over and over again if you keep looking at hip-hop's history when it has been kind of confronted by outside forces or by controversy it's it's shown a resilient resiliency that's been able to hold it up
2: so is it true that that the origins were really a party in the bronx (laughs) can you talk about cool Herc?
6: yeah so cool Herc is there's basically three foundational DJs that everybody uh, looks up to. is this hierarchy of, of when hip-hop started. There's African Bombada, Grandmaster Flash, and Cool Herc. And Kool Herc, he had this party that he held for his sister Cindy, a going-back-to-school party, and he had been practicing this new technique where he was extending the break beats, the drum patterns of a song. And when he debuted at this party... All the kids really loved it because they could get down and dance to these sections of the songs that he was extending. They could basically uh, dance longer. And so he got growing in popularity and popularity. And he was taking these break beats from these obscure songs, these James Brown songs, these Apache songs. And that's really how the genre birth got birth uh, yeah. right there, along with the other DJs.
2: Yeah, well, you know, one of the songs, when people think about the early days of hip-hop, they think about the Sugar Hill Hill Gang and Rapper's Delight. Let's hear a little bit of it as we go into the break, but before we do, can you just say a few words about why this song is so popular still?
6: Yeah, that's when millions of people got introduced to hip-hop for the first time. That was really one of the first hip-hop songs to make it onto vinyl and onto radio.
2: Yeah, and uh, I mean... I know people who can recite all like 14-15 minutes of it. So so let's hear a little bit of it going into the break. We'll talk more hip hop. This is forum.
4: I said a hip-hop, the, the, the hip, the hip to the hip, hip-hop, you don't stop the rocket to the bang, bam. They up jump the boogie to the rhythm of the booger to beat. Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove my friends are gonna try to move your feet you see i am wonder mike and i like to say hello
6: All to the black to the white the red and the brown and the purple and yellow but first i gotta bang bang the boogie to the boogie say
4: up jump the boogie to the bang bang just rock you don't stop block the rhythm that'll make your body rock well so far well, you've heard my voice about i brought
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the rise of hip-hop with writer Jonathan Abrams, whose new book, The Come-Up, comes out on October 18th. And we want to hear from you. What's the first song on your hip-hop playlist? Or what are the songs that you're listening to now? Is there a song or artist that got you hooked on hip-hop the way Tupac did for Jonathan Abrams? You can tell us by calling 866-733-6786, 866 733 6786. You can email forum at kqed.org or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram or at KQED forum. So, so let's talk a little bit about the evolution of, of rap. We were talking about how it kind of started in the South Bronx. Rapper's Delight makes hip-hop, and I think the terminology of hip-hop, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, like a more widespread known thing. But it doesn't take long or too too long before it it leaves the east coast and starts heading west, right Jonathan?
6: Yeah, and just hearing those two songs back to back, <laughs> Rappers Delight and NWA, that <laughs> that whole evolution, that was only a decade and and you hear it and it's it's more advanced, it's different, it's back when uh Rappers Delight came out, it was it was a lot of party music. It was the hip hop, the hop hip hop, and you don't stop and yeah, yeah. that type of stuff. And then in 1982, the message comes out and that's the broken glass everywhere. And it's more socially conscious. It's one of hip hop's uh, first songs to really document what people are seeing and kind of urban plight. So you look at the evolution a few years later, Public Enemy comes out and then NWA comes out and hip hop is starting to hold uh, a mirror up to society that, you know, this is this is the ills that we're seeing and, you know, what is going to be done about it. And I love that it's used as a vehicle for that.
2: Yeah, a lot of the stuff that came out of Southern California got rebranded as as Gangster Rap. Was that something that you feel like the artists were calling it or was it a label that was put on it?
6: Yeah, they were calling it, people like Ice-T and Ice Cube and Eazy-E, those type of artists they were calling it hustler rap or reality rap because they were really just documenting what they were seeing. It was the mainstream media who kind of co-opted it and started calling it gangster rap.
2: And they also I remember I think it was NWA really was sort of in the crosshairs of Tipper Gore. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about about Tipper Gore and the movement to to basically declare it like obscene, um, unfit um just something that needed to be to be banned.
6: Yeah, they had the that was in the mid eighties when Tipper Gore's uh parental parental uh organization was out and they were also going against groups like Two Life Crew. And then it wasn't just Tipper Gore for NWA. The FBI also sent <laughs> the NWA a letter after their obviously very controversial song at the police and they kind of used that though it was before social media or anything like that but they kind of it out that hey we're a group that even the fbi is worried about and, <laughs> and so they ended up really really using that almost as a, a source to propel them to become even more popular
2: yeah can you talk a little bit about the format of the book because one of the really powerful moments w- was reading the origins of that song against the police. And because this is public radio, I can't even say the name of the song, but um, and hearing Ice Cube or reading Ice Cube in his own words, talking about how, um how that was a really a hard song to convince Dre and other people to, to put out. And, and it's just, Getting it in this format, getting those kinds of origin stories in the format of an oral history is, is really different. Why did you choose that? Why did that feel right for this?
6: There have already been a couple really, really great books on the history of hip-hop. And Jeff Chang has Can't Stop, Won't Stop. And Dan right. Charnas has The Big Payback. Personally, I love oral histories. And when they're done right, they're almost like a, a documentary on paper. And I was hoping for the reader to be able to hear these stories from these legends in their own words and their own voices and their own understanding of what happened and why. And almost for them to feel like these artists and DJs and producers and executives are sitting in one giant room and having conversations and bouncing thoughts and reflections off of one another.
2: Yeah. Uh, Well, we got a call from Chris in Oakland. Let me go to Chris. Hey, thanks for joining us. You're on.
4: Hey, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to get your thoughts on and just uh, put it out there to give shouts out to people uh, rappers such as like Black Thought from Philly to see him transcend from where he was in the roots to where they are to where they are with Fallon um, on the late night. In addition, there's a 10-minute freestyle with Black Thought on Funkmaster Flex that is just, it's ridiculous. I'm sure it has like millions of views at this point, but just want to get your thoughts on that.
2: Oh, Chris, thanks. Jonathan?
4: Yeah, Black
6: Thought is a genius. He's he's one of the most thoughtful lyricists out there and I don't think he gets the type of credit he does. And I no. think if you, Yeah. If you think back to the origins of hip hop, right, and and to think of artists who are, you know, it's not just obviously Black Thought, it's all of the roots who are on with Jimmy Kimmel and to think that hip hop is something that is on television every single night on mainstream television where in the late 1980s, it couldn't get e- even get shown on the Grammys and how far it's come in just a couple generations. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. You actually had a really cool conversation with Kool Moe Dee about boycotting the Grammys and why Kool Moe Dee did not, right? Or did not think that was a good idea.
6: Yeah. So Kool Moe Dee was just one of the most interesting people I think I've ever talked to. He really knew his history, not just in hip hop, but just the history of the world, this country. And his reflections were just really, really thoughtful. So a lot of hip-hop boycotted the Grammys in the late 1980s when they were going to do the first hip-hop award, basically because they weren't going to show it on primetime TV with the rest of the awards. People like L O Cool J and, and Def Jam, they ended up boycotting. But Cool Mo D, who was also nominated, said that they didn't get the chance to really break bread and talk about this. And it was kind of a unilateral decision made by Def Jam. And he thought that it would be more impactful to actually go there and then say why they were upset than just boycott it all together. So he was one of the only stars who actually went to the first uh, first time the Grammys had a hip hop award.
2: Yeah, he felt like it was a big opportunity still to to get hip hop out there. Um, to the masses. And and as we were talking about earlier, it was spreading. Uh, I mentioned the East Coast, um, Southern California on the West Coast, but talk a little bit about Northern California. Could you talk a little bit about the Bay Area and the uh, Bay Area's contribution to hip-hop?
6: Yes, we were talking about how Black Thought is underrated, and I feel like the Bay Area as a whole does not get the credit that it should have because the hip-hop music that the Bay Area has offered us is so eclectic and ranging and divergent and important and impactful, and it goes from MC Hammer to Hieroglyphics to Paris to Too Short to, you know, we we're talking about Tupac at the beginning, and Tupac right. got his start with Digital Underground yep, and, and Mob Music and Ant Banks. I mean, I could go on and on. The Bay Area has a significant uh, impact and foothold on hip-hop.
2: Yeah, well, we've got a cut of, of Too Short in the trunk. Let's hear a little of that. 20 at, 20 at. I sold tapes every day, me and Freddie B. Been famous since 1983. Give me $10, and you straight
6: get blessed. A rap all about you called the special request. The Oakland, you know, I go way back to Coog Nuts, Stings, and Cadillac. When homeboys put folks on any car with 6 by 9 smoking burner.
2: Everybody got it. We're looking at the history of hip-hop from its origins in the South Bronx to the worldwide phenomenon, really, that it is today. And we're talking about it with Jonathan Abrams, who's written a new oral history called The Come Up, an oral history of the rise of hip-hop. And you, our listeners, are weighing in with your favorite hip-hop artists, songs, or moments And uh, Leslie writes the message. That song is great to me. I didn't care for the bragging stuff. Another listener writes, Curtis Blow, Christmas Rappin'. Ruby tweets, a favorite hip-hop track from my past is a tribe called Quest's Can I Kick It from 1990. It was the blending of a beat sample from Lou Reed and Q-Tips lyrics that made hip-hop a new force in music. So one of the moments in hip-hop that you you really meditate on a lot are—it's um, the Source Awards in 95, I think it was. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there and why you see it as one of the biggest moments in hip-hop?
6: Yeah. So the Source Awards were—first of all, the Source magazine was hip-hop's Bible, basically. And in 1994, they started handing out awards— and the ninety five awards were pivotal for a few reasons. Uh, Tupac had just been shot, and he was sequestered in jail, and he was about to sign with Death Row records and Bad Boy was this hottest new label that was battling with Death Row, and this east Coast West Coast rivalry was really starting to bubble and Shug Knight, who was the head of Death Row, he went on stage and made his big proclamation, you know any artist out there that want to be an artist stay a star and won't have to worry about the executive producer trying to be on the videos, on the records, dancing, come to death row. And that's a direct shot at Puff Daddy and Bad Boy and kind of his hip hop and what he's doing at the moment. So that that night really officially ignited the whole East Coast, West Coast rivalry. But beyond that, uh, the significant part that I really wanted to highlight in the book is that there's this new group, OutKast, from Atlanta, who... As hip-hop to that point, it had revolved around these two epicenters for the most part, New York and Los Angeles. The Outkast, this group nobody knows from Atlanta, wins the award for Best New Rap Group. And when they get on stage to accept the award at Madison Square Garden, they're booed and they're booed loudly. And Andre 3000, he proclaims the South got something to say. And that one statement right there, it served as a rallying cry, not just for Atlanta but for Miami, Memphis, New Orleans and all the South and it puts this entire region on the grind to really take over hip hop over the next few years after being basically overlooked and discounted.
2: Yeah, how is the South sound different from the East Coast and the West Coast?
6: So what's really interesting about hip hop is how different regions and, and areas interpret it differently. So a lot of the music in the hip in, in the South is more music based and, and bass driven, it's more music that you're going to dance to. But there, there are lyricists. There are people like you know Andre 3000, and and back then Outkast and organized, had organized noise, who was this incredible production team doing their their beats, and their beats were all original compensations.
2: Can you take a moment to talk about Missy Elliott? <laughs> Do you consider <laughs> coming out of the South? I guess it's Virginia, right?
6: Yeah, I kind of give it that, that like halfway <laughs> south New York, uh, kind of in the middle.
2: Yeah, talk about Missy Elliott's influence because you definitely also hear it so much in, in our contemporary artists.
6: Yeah, so when, when she came up and she came up with Timbaland out in out in Virginia, just the music that they were making together was so unique and so new and so different. It almost sounded like something like you would hear from, outer space right and she was so fresh and unique and had get your freak on and pass that dutch and work it and all that stuff like i remember in in high school it would seem like every couple weeks missy would have this new uh, amazing song with this new amazing beat and you'd see this video and she'd be wearing these baggy puffy shiny clothes and she was just so so original and she yeah her impact is really really amazing in this
2: genre as well uh, well, this song from Missy Ellie that we've got is "The Rain." And I think it's in your Spotify playlist, right? that you created yeah. for this book. Why this song? Listen to the beat. <laughs> <laughs> this is the word. Right, let's listen.
1: when the rain
5: hits my window I take in <gasps> me some me we sang a dangle we so tight that you get our styles tangled sway your do-si-do like you local can we get
2: can Missy Elliot The Rain and we're getting lots of comments coming in from you, our listeners about your favorite hip-hop artists, songs what the genre means to you your questions about it too, Jonathan Abrams A New York Times staff writer and also author has written an oral history called The Come-Up. This listener writes, Can you discuss why many mainstream artists and the genre more generally get a pass when it comes to the misogyny, homophobia, glorification of violence, etc., pervasive in contemporary hip-hop, especially when there are many artists out there often less famous, such as Aesop Aesop Rock, Blackalicious, etc., that work to produce more socially conscious and constructive lyrics?
6: Yeah, and that's definitely a a valid criticism and and concern. I think that a lot of times hip-hop, if you put up the mirror, it's a reflection of society, and what you see out of society and what you see is going to be popular and what people are buying is a reflection of what's going on in society, and I feel like hip-hop is definitely no different in that regard.
2: So, But do you feel like it gets a pass?
6: I don't feel like it definitely gets a pass, but I feel like, people are going to listen to what they're going to listen to you know when when tipper gore was coming out with her stuff in the 1980s and slapping the parental advisory stickers on stuff that only drove up sales so every time you're going to try to uh, censor music or ban music or have people not listen to what they're going to listen to you're going to be bound to fail i think it's up to individuals to be able to pick and choose and discern and be able to listen to the music that's appeals to their own sensibilities and their own values. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't necess- necessarily listen to today that gets a lot of uh, popularity and play, but I'm always going to be driven by somebody like Kendrick Lamar, artists who are preaching messages out there.
2: How, how did you deal with interviewees with their personal failings? I think the way that you put it were, were people who were subject to allegations of wrongdoing sometimes serious. How did you handle that?
6: Yeah, that's, you, you have to acknowledge what happened in the past and not try to sugarcoat anything, but try to prevent facts and, and realities and what you can go on. And, you know, we definitely had that with a couple people who had been interviewed, and you you acknowledge that because it's, it's real and it's damaging.
2: Let me go to Tony in San Francisco. Hi, Tony.
3: Hey, how are you?
2: Great. Go on. You're on. Oh,
3: excellent. Hey, listen, I'm just saying, listen, uh, it's so nice to hear people talking about hip-hop and the the written word um, about it so that people can read and understand a little bit more. When I was a kid, I used to hold up my tape recorder um, to the speakers to be able to record the jams on 98.7 as a kid to edit out the commercials, and that was like the badge of honor to be able to have a tape (laughs) that you could have all the commercials completely edited out and it was just like my, my favorite thing. I grew up listening to hip hop, and me and my brother, we shined shoes. And the first album we bought was Run DMC. Run DMC. Um, we bought the Fat Boys. It was Houdini, um, the first and the first, first, first hip hop song I ever memorized completely was "Microphone scene by Eric B. and Rakim.
2: <laughs> well, Tony, thanks. That's awesome. We will be yeah, talking uh, more about hip hop uh, after the break, but uh, this is this is for you.
3: Wanna hear
4: me? You just wanna dance.
2: Welcome back to Forum, and listeners, you are telling us your favorite hip-hop artists, what you're listening to now, your questions about hip-hop, and Somar tweets, Outcast And John writes, my intro to hip-hop was when I lived abroad in France in 95 as a 12-year-old MC Solar broke me into the genre. And Michelle writes, as a club kid in England in the 80s, Africa's Bombata, Planet Rock and Melly, Mel's White Lines were the soundtrack of my life. Listeners, if you want to share yours, you can email forum at kqed.org, post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum, or give us a call at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. So, Jonathan, do you come up a lot on the question of what defines hip-hop? I was just listening to Haya, and I was thinking, you know, what is hip-hop, right? Like, what qualifies? <laughs>
6: That's the especially tougher question in this day and age where it's not just what is hip-hop, but you have different people or different artists who traditionally are outside the realm of quote-unquote hip-hop who are doing uh, different types of subgenres in hip-hop and trap songs like that. You know, I think hip-hop, the definition is just the culture surrounding hip-hop, and it's the breakdancing, the graffiti, the rap, the DJing and all that stuff combined is what makes hip hop. So I don't know if there's a universal definition where you can just say, "Hey, this song is hip hop and this song is different." But I do feel like hip hop is so ubiquitous in today's society that you can almost call anything it.
2: <laughs> well, Ron asks, "What is the difference between hip hop and rap?" Hmm. What would you say to Ron?
6: Yeah, so rap is rap is basically the the written vocal delivery of uh, most hip-hop songs and it represents the rhyming but it's just one component of of the broader hip-hop m- movement and like I said it has all the cultural elements including one's lifestyles and experience it's what you wear it's your attitude I think Keras One, a legendary hip-hop artist he put it the best by saying rap is something you do and hip-hop is something you live
1: hmm.
2: yeah it does feel like also when you talk about it in you know, culturally, the products, the the ideas, it it's its reach is very very broad. Let me go to Eric in Palo Alto, who's on the line. Hi, Eric, you're on.
4: Hi, just uh, wanted to talk to your your guy there. You seem very knowledgeable about all this stuff. I just I'm an old guy, been in the music business like forever. And people talk about when Seymour Stein signed Ice T, was the mm-hmm. beginning of the narrative of commercial music using uh, spoken word to make money where it was the, the product was like a lot uh, more inexpensive to make. And people saw this coming like Rapture by Blondie. They were on the same label. Uh, Chris Stein, the guitar player in Blondie is Seymour Stein's son. And just want to know if you could put a time a, a clock on it. Like when did the, you know, cause we always talk about it. I I've known many engineers that said, has told me there'll never be a greatest hits hits of rap or hip hop. It's not it's not something that's done chronologically. It's in the now. It's like a newscast compared to a, a you know a poem that you write from your heart. So it's compared to you know Fleetwood Mac, uh, which is like the girls' poetry compared to a newscast like you know basically the freaks come out at night started talking about that stuff. When was the time? What do you think? Just your opinion.
2: Hmm. Eric, thanks.
6: Yeah, thanks for that question. I'll even date it back a little bit further where and when Rapper's Delight came out in 1979, that was the first time hip-hop had been commercialized and, and made for the masses. And that actually s- set up this big divide in hip-hop because there were these a lot of crews who had been doing it for a long time and they had considered that what they were doing was more advanced than what the sugar Hill gang came out with. And the sugar Hill gang was kind of just put together by Sylvia Robinson, uh, to make this specific record at that time because she wanted to get hip hop onto the radio. So there was a lot of conflict and, and and contention back then because they almost felt like hip hop had been set back because now all this, all these new people knew about this genre and what they heard they liked and it was popular for them and it was new for them, but it wasn't new for people who had already been doing this for a long time. So they almost felt like they had to go back and retrain themselves to do this more elementary version of what they were doing. So it's almost like back then once, once corporate America puts two cents into something, it it becomes something different and it's going to be shifted for forever. And I think that's the battle that we still see in hip hop, where there's going to be that conscious hip hop, the the hip hop that that means something, the kind of stuff that Public Enemy was doing. And there's going to be hip hop where people are going to just want to forget about their day and dance to.
2: What does it say to you that that Kendrick Lamar, I think he won the Pulitzer Prize in music um, for his album. Damn, is that right? Am I remembering that? Was it 2017 or 2018? Yeah, yeah, in
6: 2017, yeah.
2: 2017. If you think about the types or the things that you're talking about with regard to, to hip hop and what it can be, what does that mean to you?
6: Yeah, so that was, that to me is such a pivotal moment in modern hip hop history where it's another height and peak that nobody had ever really envisioned hip hop could reach until Kendrick Lamar did that a few years ago. And it's so great that it was recognized on that scale and that level by that organization. But the point that I would try to make in this book was that as amazing and and incredible as it is, a group like Public Enemy could have been honored just as easily 30 years later. So I think it's this shift in how the greater society has viewed hip-hop.
2: Yeah, so it's a question of, it's a question of both whether or not the genre, if people were questioning whether or not the genre had a certain level of depth and maturity in the years of like Public Enemy, absolutely it did. It was just more of our, of racism, our social structures, and so on that treated hip hop for so long. You think as something that didn't deserve that kind of recognition or respect?
6: Yeah, as as a fad, a lot of a lot of as a fad,
2: you said. As a fad? Yes,
6: a fad, F-A-D. A A lot of people in the beginning of this genre just, they didn't play instruments. They weren't doing stuff that was original, that stuff wasn't going to last. And, you know, back to the beginning of our conversation is that story of perseverance um, and becoming this gigantic, gigantic genre.
2: Well, let's hear a little bit from Kendrick. Let's hear God.
3: It's what God feel like, huh. yeah, laughing to the bank like, ah, huh. yeah, flex on sword like, ah, huh. yeah, you feel, you feel some type, type of wave in. A young, man. A young man All I want to be was a gunman you gotta see that I won, man Slick is out of bars with the ways You're
2: appreciating hip-hop this hour. Thanks to Jonathan Abrams, who has a new book called The Come Up, An Oral History of the Rise of Hip-Hop, where you hear the stories of hip-hop told from the artists, the producers, the DJs, themselves you can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org calling us at 866-733-6786 or by posting on twitter facebook or instagram your questions about hip-hop what hip-hop means to you the songs or artists that really got you hooked and uh Judd writes are the last poets part of hip-hop history i assume they are what do you think the last poets
6: oh yeah there's a direct uh direct lineage where you see them in Gil Scott Herring leading into hip-hop. I I don't think you could have hip-hop beginning in the beginning like it did without a group like The Last Poets.
2: And another listener, Kent, writes, As a white kid growing up in suburbia, I found the Anthrax and Public Enemy collaboration on Bring the Noise to be a revelation. It channeled new ideas to the heads of suburban metalheads and it still rocks bells. This listener tweets, it's yours by Tila Rock did it for me. I recall Rick Rubin popping around neighborhoods, peeping DJs, getting production, going back in the days. Another listener writes, it would be Bone thugs and harmony album E, 1999, Eternal. It was a blend of gritty street perspective and smooth melody that made me fall in love with them. Them, not being from neither the East, West, or South, they're from Cleveland, was an expansive moment for hip-hop. Let me go to AJ in San Francisco. Hi, AJ. Hi, how are you? I'm well. You're on. Um,
3: I wanted to uh, just, for me, I'm from the East Coast, and for me, the year 1993 was so pivotal. Like, you had uh, Tribe Called Quest, Midnight Marauders, uh, uh, Wu-Tang Clan, with their first album came out, uh, Mob Deep, Nas. To me, those rappers were so cerebral, and they were documenting their lives. It wasn't all about money and girls and the property I owned, but it was real. They talked about depression. They talked about poverty, uh, broken families. Um, and to me, that, was, that really grabbed me. I also wanted to ask your, uh, your guest. Uh, to me, the first kind of documentary of, about hip-hop was a, a movie called Crush Groove and, uh, and also the influence of Rick Rubin who started uh, Def Jam, I believe, out of his dorm room at NYU.
6: Um,
3: yeah. I yeah. was if you could comment on that.
2: Thanks, AJ. Jonathan?
6: Yeah, and I'm glad that La Rock actually got a mention in the <laughs> earlier comments as well because that was Def Jam's first offering was, was Tila Rock by Rick Rubin. So Rick Rubin's imprint on the Beastie Boys and Def Jam and... L. Cool J, he, it was monumental because his sonic template really brought hip hop. It, it crossed over hip hop from being in the parks to being more prevalent in the mainstream culture, and you kinda, he kind of he kind of sets the table for Run DMC to take over. I'll even go a little bit earlier than Crush Groove. There's a 1980. I think it came out in 1984. It was. A movie called Wild Style, and that had a lot of the pioneers and early, early practitioners of, of hip hop and graffiti. It had hip hop battles, and was, if anybody's ever watched it, it's this really, really early, early, almost visual gem of hip hop's birth, and it's as earliest as you're going to see it on film, and it's just genuine.
2: We're talking with Jonathan Abrams, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I think you're answering this, listener Chris's question. Chris writes, is there a piece of media out there, a show or movie that you've enjoyed that is a great way to get into hip-hop history? Also, Chris says, excited for this book, which again is out October 18th. Is there anything you'd add, Jonathan, in terms of a piece of media out there for history?
6: Netflix has a a documentary series on the evolution of hip-hop that's really good. And Wild Style and Crush Groove are two good early movies that I would recommend.
2: AJ mentioned Nas. Who's your top five, Jonathan? <laughs>
6: <laughs> I I would say my I have like the non uh, controversial top five, if there is one. <laughs> I would say my top five artists are Tupac, Biggie, Nas, Jay Z and Rod Kim and I'm just looking at their influence their words I love artists who are able to stretch words and make words work harder than they typically do and I think all five of those guys have that in them
2: Yeah I can imagine hearing also AJ talking about who he loved on the East Coast that you are are really are a lyrics person as a writer right Jonathan that that's really important not just the beat
6: Yeah that's always been amazing to me is at at their heart, the the artists and lyricists that I love, who I who I'm driven to listen to, they're they're poets <laughs> more than anything. You can go back to Il- Ilm in the 1993 94 when it came out, and it's just pure poetry over ten songs, where he puts you in a place in an era, and it's vivid and and that's what it is they they can transport you and take you to a world and describe it in ways that you haven't heard or seen
5: before
2: one of the things in writing this book you mentioned that that you conducted more than more than 300 interviews with some of the the people who were there in its earliest incarnations did you feel pressure to talk to them before they were gone.
6: I—that's an interesting question because a couple people who I did talk to for the book passed before it came out.
4: Mm.
6: I don't know if I felt pressure at the time, but I think that there's when you're trying to to document something as important as you know the history of a musical genre, you, you just want to try to do a good job, and I think how it's perceived isn't up to you, but if if I knew that I did my best and did everything I could, which I think I did, then I'm happy with it.
2: Did the deaths of, of Tupac and, and Biggie play a role in making you want to get these voices down, you think?
6: Uh, it's been... <laughs> I, I laughed because for so long I was one of those kids who you would hear those rumors about Tupac and he's in Jamaica somewhere and you hear his new music coming out. I was trying to hang on to, to that he would be alive for so, so long. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it, 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 those deaths, they, they occurred so long ago. That right, right. I, I don't not. know if they played a role in this book, but I know they definitely had, both artists definitely had an impact in, in my life.
2: Well, Jason writes, De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising. This album from 1988 remains my favorite hip-hop album of all time. But due to sample issues, I don't think you can stream it anywhere. We didn't talk about sampling, but yeah. Uh, Nathan writes, Master Ace to Grind, Loot Pack Answers, Missy Elliott, The Rain, Changed My Life. Love this show. Another listener writes, Living Legends... Osaka Tales, and Zoe writes, that's Peter, and Zoe writes, Paul's Boutique, Beastie Boys, the whole album, listened, start to finish. Why did you call your oral history the come-up, Jonathan?
6: It's, it's funny, because originally we were going to go with Book of Rhymes, because I just love the thought of a book of rhymes for artists, and Nas has a song with that title, and so does Eminem, but as I Kept reporting on it and looking at the scope of what I was learning, and through these interviews and the totality and grand scope of, of hip hop, you know, I just keep coming back to the thought of how it came from this neglected kids in the Bronx to flourish and to becoming the most widely consumed and, to me, influential musical genre. So to come up making something out of nothing, it just felt right.
2: Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for talking with us, and congrats on the book. This is quite a project.
6: Mina, this is my
2: pleasure. Jonathan Abrams, the book is The Come Up, an Oral History of the Rise of Hip Hop. And Forum is produced by this show by Grace Swan, also Caroline Smith. And uh, Susie Britton is our lead producer. Marlena Rotondo Jackson is our engagement producer. Also, Susan Davis is our senior producer. Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin are our engineers. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and C. Kelly Campos. And our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. This is Forum. Have a great weekend.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.